you guys all happy with where you're sitting? I, am I, I don't know if I'm appearing on, am I appearing on the screens? Excellent. Um, so we are going to be, just in case, the other day I started a seminar and about 10 minutes in, a number of the people realized that it wasn't about what they thought it was about. So I will say it up front, this is a seminar on why or how could a loving God possibly allow suffering. So if you're looking for that, you're in the right place. If you're not, I won't be offended at all if you head over to a different seminar. And uh, we're going to be looking at how could a loving God possibly allow so much suffering. So if you could come in, find a seat, quiet down, or whatever it is we do, that would be great. Does somebody have a tambourine in the room? That's making quite a lot of noise. Or is that you? That's excellent. Okay. All right. How could a loving God possibly allow so much suffering? I've got a few slides coming up which give a number of examples of questions that we received as a local church where I was from in Eastbourne. I used to be a pastor in Eastbourne. And thank you, thank you, whooping. Um, And we did a survey of the whole town and we did it through putting stuff online and we gave out flyers and we got people to fill out postcards and we stopped people and asked them. And we wanted to find out what people's biggest objection was to Christianity. And by far the largest objection to Christianity was this one. How could, some variant of, how could a loving God possibly allow so much suffering? It's a very real question. And we found it was much the biggest. And in fact, I found that whenever I've done things like this anywhere in the country and actually in other countries too, this is the question that comes up the most. There are other questions people have and they vary according to different nations. But around the world, in my experience, this question is just way out front. And here is a sample of some of the questions that we had when we asked people, what's your objection to Christianity? One of them wrote, does God love us all? The Bible says God is a God of love and loves us all. So why does he let us suffer with illness, starvation, abuse, suffering, and many more dreadful happenings in the world time and time again? Sometimes enough is enough. When is it going to end? If you've read any Psalms, you'll know that some of them sound like that. There's comments like that in the Bible. It's a good question. It's one we should face and wrestle with. It's one, one I was facing last night as Francis was speaking about losing his parents and then one of his, his uncle murdering his aunt or something. I thought, how does this, why is this allowed to happen? Another one, my brother died suddenly in his sleep and I'm still left clueless. Sometimes I'm angry at God or upset or confused. I don't expect it all to make sense, but I merely ask, why could you sh- cut a life so short? Am I being punished? Can God free me from suffering and pain? Is this all a test in how strong my faith is? I don't understand. And again, if you've read the book of Job, you'll know that that question almost comes straight out of it. That's exactly the kind of question the Bible says you should be asking this and wrestling with it because bad stuff happens. Third one, if there is a God, why does he allow babies and children to be treated badly, to suffer disease and to die Surely children are yet to be bad or offend God. Also, why do we have to have pain and suffering? The next one. I've always struggled with the question, why does God allow children to get cancer or die young in terrible accidents? Why is there such horrid suffering 
for some children. And they just keep going on. Next one. If God doesn't like violence, then why does it exist? Next one. Why do people suffer? That's just basically the question we're asking today. Briefest version possible. Next one. Why did God give us free will if he knew what the outcome would be like? Suffering, poverty, cruelty. Next one. I don't believe in a loving God because there is so much suffering and so many awful things happening in the world. Next one. My aunt who lives in Eastbourne has lost her two husbands to cancer at relatively young ages. She says she cannot believe in a loving God. And the last one for now, although this is just scratching the surface of dozens and dozens in our survey and probably thousands in this room, I cannot believe that a kind and loving God could create a world that doesn't have food and water shared equally, where so many innocent people are cruelly treated by evil people, where population growth is not naturally controlled, where birth itself can be horrendous, and where most animals kill to live. Surely, there could have been a better eternal plan. Now, I trust that you're here because you have some version of those questions. That, and I do too, by the way. Um, so you, sometimes you think, why are you talking to us then? I, I share those questions. I speak as somebody speaking from my own wrestling with those questions as well. I, this is not the sort of seminar where you guys come and you have questions and I say, here's the answer. And you'll go, oh, okay, well, if that's the answer, suffering's fine. I don't even mind suffering. Bring it on. That's not the way that this will go because that's not, and I don't think it should, according to Scripture. I don't think that's the way that we are meant to think about the problem of suffering and evil in the world. And I would say that the problem of evil is almost certainly the most powerful objection to Christian belief. So I'd said earlier, it's probably the most common, at least in Britain today, Um, But it's also, I think, the most powerful. I think it's the hardest one to respond to. It's the one that I, as a Christian, and many of us as Christians, would have the strongest affinity with, as as in we would agree with an awful lot of the objection. So with some of the topics that are coming up today uh, uh, in this series, I would say, do you know what? I, I actually don't find it difficult to understand how science and God come together, or why, if God is the creator of all things and is holy, as we heard last night, he might say, this is, these are the boundaries for your sex lives, and I want you to stick to it, even if some people don't want to. I, I understand why other people struggle with that, but for me, that's quite an easy one to defend and explain. The problem of suffering for me is different, because it's one that I also live in the middle of, saying, why, why, why? And my wife and I have written a, a book about this recently in the last few years about the way that's affected us in our family with our children and their uh, re- regressive autism and epilepsy and all kinds of things which have just been really tough, for, at least for us. It's hard times. Not like having your uncle shoot your aunt, but still pretty bad in our setting. And so we are asking these questions too. We're with you. And that's why this objection is so powerful. And what it does is it combines a very strong logical argument with a very strong emotional pull as well. And most arguments about God don't do that. So again, if you stand back from the two topics we've looked at in this series already, the argument about sexuality, sexual expression, is a powerful emotional argument, but not really that powerful a logical argument. As in, I'm not allowed to do this, therefore God doesn't exist, is not very logical, but at an emotional level, it's very powerful because people say, this is who I feel like I am, and you're saying I need to decide to renounce aspects of that or to live differently in order to honor God. That's a strong emotional pull, but not necessarily a logical one. 
On the other hand, the science one we did yesterday is much stronger logically. Look at these intellectual difficulties. But it's not the kind of thing that people generally get very emotionally drawn by. Because it sounds quite... Suffering is the double whammy because it brings together a strong logical and a strong emotional appeal. And that's what makes it difficult. So in the next few minutes, what I want to do, and just so you know where we're going, I, I, will, I will try and persuade you, I'll try and persuade you of three things, three brief responses, I suppose, and then we're going to take questions which will come with microphones, there's one there and one there, and we'll take a whole bunch of questions, and then we will be finished at bang on 12.30, I will disappear in, in a puff of smoke, and we will all go and have lunch. So we, if, you wanna, if you have a question, I'm not going to be around at the end, sadly, so we're going to just get all the questions that we can in that slot. So that's where we're going. Um, I'll probably talk now for 20, 25 minutes or something, and then we'll take questions. But I want to try and persuade you of three things in the next 20 or 25 minutes. The first one is I want to give you a short answer to the question, why does God allow suffering? Right? Or how could a loving God allow suffering? I want to give you a short answer to that question. It's easy to remember. Very easy to remember, okay? Second thing I want to do is I want to look at the logical problem of evil. So the reasons why somebody might argue logically that since there is evil, there cannot be a good God. And then the third thing I want to do is to engage more with the emotional problem of evil, which is what a number of the other objectors we just read were saying, okay? So short answer, then the logical problem, and then the emotional problem. So the first thing, the short answer. You have pens ready? You want to write it down? The short answer, why would a loving God allow suffering? The short answer is, we don't know. We don't know. And I'm not saying that as a joke answer, although it could sound like one. I'm saying it because many years of trying to answer this question and think about it have convinced me both that as a pastor and as a reader of the Bible, that is much the best answer I have if someone asks me that question. Why would God allow as we heard, my brother to die as a child. Why did God allow that earthquake? Why did God allow the tsunami? Why did God allow this? Why did God allow, why does he allow domestic violence? Why does he allow genocide? And my best answer is, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to try and give you an answer that will fit that problem. I don't think I have one. I might be able to guess but my guessing could be very damaging to you, and it could actually be damaging to me as well. So let me give you a few examples of why that's true. It's tremendously important that we don't immediately try and give an answer, I think, because, well, there's a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is that if you think there is one answer out there to that question, and you give somebody the answer that you found to be true in another context, but it isn't true in theirs, you will very quickly put the blame for what's happening in the wrong place. And people will either end up blaming themselves or they will end up blaming God. So here are some examples of quick answers that sound convincing that are often unhelpful. Suffering happens because of free will. Human beings have free choices, that's why suffering happens. There was no suffering and then we have Adam and Eve and they fell and as a result of free will, God gives people free will suffering happens. And the, the reason why that's not always helpful is because although sometimes that's true, it is true, right? There are some, if I was to walk past you and slap you in the face on my way to lunch, the reason why that suffering would have happened to you is because I had the free choice to do it. And there's a certain point at which my freedom to slap you and your freedom not to suffer collide. And it's round about here. 
That's where, the, that's where they collide. And if, I, if, you are, if I'm to have the freedom to do what I want with my arms, you don't have the freedom not to experience pain. Now, that is obviously true of some suffering. There is some suffering that happens because human beings make evil choices. And often those choices are not simply slapping another person, not that that's okay, but they are far, far graver and more savage and dark. And many of us have experienced the consequences of other people's, all of us have in some way, other people's evil choices. And many of us, if we're honest, have also made evil choices that have caused grave suffering to other people. I certainly have. There are people I have grievously harmed. And I'm sorry for all of those things, but I can't take them back. And you have probably done some things like that as well. Now, the, So that is sometimes true. Right? That is an answer to, that's why some kinds of suffering happen, but it is certainly not true of all suffering. There's an awful lot of suffering that doesn't happen because of, or at least if it happens because of a human choice, it is extremely unclear what that choice would be. I did not make any different kinds of choices to the people who were living in Sri Lanka when the t- tsunami hit. And it killed them and it didn't kill me. And it wasn't because of my choice or their choice, it just happened. And that would be true of the, the people who get cancer and the people who... I, I met a guy yesterday who's just found out he's been diagnosed with cancer. And I, and I, and I met a, a person a few days ago who was telling me about how their, one of their relatives had recently tried to commit suicide. And, and I, this is just in the last few days. And I'm thinking, you didn't make that choice. And in fact, in the case of the cancer thing, nobody made a choice. It just happened. This is not something that gets apportioned according to people's bad choices. So that's an important reason why you mustn't say, here's the answer. It's all because of free choice. Well, often it isn't. Another answer people give is some people say, well, suffering happens because physical laws exist. And because physical laws exist, physical laws are necessary for life. And physical laws mean that sometimes people will experience pain. And you could say, well, yes, that's true. But the same physical laws exist for us all. And yet some people clearly suffer more than others. I read a book a couple of years ago. It was a biography of an American pastor in the 18th century and he, I, I might be getting the numbers wrong here, but I think he had 11 children and 10 of them died before he did. He suffered immeasurably more, and his children suffered immeasurably more than I probably ever will, or than you probably ever will. And yet the same physical laws apply to us all. So I can't look, I can't say, well, it's just because of physics. I say, well, yep, that explains maybe why some forms of pain are here, but what it doesn't do at all is explain why suffering happens in the way that it does. Some people say, well, suffering happens to prepare us for eternity, to prepare our souls. And again, I would say, well, that's true, maybe in some cases, but some people suffer far more than others, and it doesn't explain why they need to be so much more prepared for eternity than they do. Or some people say suffering is a response to sin. Again, suffering is not apportioned according to your good or badness. Some of you have suffered terribly already. Some of you have hardly suffered at all. It's an intellectual exercise for you, this seminar. And having heard those things, you might think, well, I'm no better than she is, but she's suffered way more than I have. It's not a, not a result of sin, often. So the Bible often provides perspectives on sin and suffering, but what it never does is to say all suffering is because of this. And that means that my best shot when someone says, why has this happened? When my, one of our closest friends who... They got married at the same time as we did. They had a baby at the first time as we did. We've seen them for dinner in a week, I think. Close friends of ours, when she gets stage, when she suddenly finds out she's got stage four cancer, 
And we're sitting on their sofa, and everybody's crying, and she's saying, why is this happening? The best answer I've got is, I don't know. I don't know. I am so sorry. And the longest book in the Bible to address the question of suffering effectively debunks all of the answers. That's what Job does. You read Job, goes, here's the problem. Is that the answer? No. That one? No. That one? No. That one? No. The end. That's how it goes. So I think this is a biblical answer and not just a helpful pastoral one, and it's not, certainly not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It actually puts you, puts Christians in general, on the hook. And it says, I don't know. I've got to admit, I do not know. Some suffering probably does happen because of free choices and sin and physical laws. But if somebody asks me why God allows so much suffering, my best answer is, I don't know. It's pretty easy to remember, right? But it's really important. So that's the short answer. Now, for many people, hearing that, the next thing they will want to say is, that's an admission of defeat. You have basically, at a Christian conference, in front of a thousand people, admitted that a loving God cannot exist. Which is not actually quite what I've done. You won't be surprised to learn. But it's important to understand that what many people will hear when you say, I don't know why God allows suffering, some of you, many of us in this room, probably not Christians at the moment, and you're hearing this and thinking, that sounds to me like you've just given away the farm and you're supposed to be a preacher. You're terrible at your job. And actually, if you say, I don't know, you are not necessarily saying, there is no reason why. You are simply saying, there may well be a reason why, but I do not know what it is. That's a very different kind of statement. And that takes us on to the logical problem of evil. So three things we're doing today. Short answer. What's the logical problem of evil? And then what's the emotional problem? Now, the logical problem of evil runs like an argument. It says, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God wouldn't allow evil to happen. But evil does happen. Therefore, an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God doesn't exist. That's the argument. It's pretty simple. And it sounds very compelling. But there is a huge problem, which if you read philosophical literature on this argument, people recognize and note and generally don't try and use this argument as a logical proof against the existence of God. And the problem is this. The argument assumes that because I cannot think of a good reason why an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God will allow evil, therefore there isn't one. And that does not necessarily follow. Right? So what the argument is really doing is saying an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God wouldn't allow suffering unless he had a good reason. I can't think of such a good reason. Therefore, there isn't one. But evil exists. Therefore, God doesn't. And the problem here is not with any of these four. It's with the middle one. The problem is you say an all-loving, all-knowing God wouldn't allow evil without a good reason. And I'd say, tick. I can't think of such a good reason. I'd say, yeah, I've just told you that's true. Therefore, there isn't one. That's the problem. Because what that argument assumes is that if there were a reason for God to allow suffering to exist, I would know what it was. And I simply do not believe I can know that's true. And many societies in history simply haven't struggled with this. So I said that if you go around the world today, you'll find a lot of people for whom this is a strong argument. The interesting thing is, if you go back 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years, you'll find not so much. Because for a lot of societies then, they would say, in fact, they'd have experienced far more suffering than I have or you have. I doubt there'd be anyone in this room 
who had suffered to the extent of an awful lot of people in Europe in the 14th century or the 9th century or in Africa in the 3rd century BC or whatever. And yet they didn't say, therefore there isn't a God. In fact, what they said was, God must have reasons. I don't know what they are. And you and I live in an age, not just a generation, but a whole era of history in which human beings have come to the conclusion that we know so much about how the world works that if there were a reason for God to do this, we would know what it was. Because we've invented so much stuff. Look at it. We have, t- we have iPhones. We have dishwashers. Sure, we've given it to the moon. Surely we would know what that reason was if there was one. And most societies in history have said, I don't think so. And as a Christian and as somebody who reads the scriptures, I would say, I don't think that's true either. I simply do not know if the God who we heard described to us last night on this stage is the real God, I have no basis at all for knowing that I would be able to think of everything he was trying to do. And it might be okay for me to say, do you know what, God has a reason somewhere, but I've got no earthly idea what it is, and I find it incredibly painful to live with that doubt. And that's what Christians have done for millennia. That's what the Jews did for millennia before that. And that's why they wrote the Psalms. And that's why they wrote Job. And that's why they wrote some of these books saying, we don't know why. And it's painful, but you are God and I am not. And therefore, I'm just going to have to concede that there's some things you understand that I don't. And therefore, I might not know why you were doing it. Illustration. Let's say I go into my, I have a conservatory at the back of my house. And at the back of my house, glass room, very easy to see everything that's in it, sofa, windows, nothing else, apart from kids' toys. And I also have a, um, a big golden retriever. He's so big, in fact, that he failed his exams to become a guide dog. That's why he's like this massive beast of a dog. Every time we go out with him, people say, that is a very, very large, freakishly big golden retriever. But yeah, yeah, failed his exams. And uh, he's called Zindel, and we like him. And uh, he is this big, right, that kind of big dog. Let's say I go into my conservatory and my wife shouts from another room in the house and she can't see yet the conservatory. Andrew, can you just check and see, is Zindel in the conservatory? I can open the door, look around, one second, no he isn't. Because I know that if he was there, I'd be able to see him. So I can say with some confidence he's not there. Because he's the kind of scale that were he in there, I would know. Now let's change the story. Now let's change it and imagine that instead, Rachel says, Andrew, I'm being bitten to pieces by these midges that we've had in this last month or two, because she does. Some of you get bitten more than others, right? You come to weeks like this and you think, I'm in the same tent as she is and she's not being bitten at all and I'm being bitten all the time. Who's who's had that experience? Okay, it's annoying. And so what you want to do is check, are there any? Are there any midges? Are there any things like that? So now let's say I'm going into the conservatory and Rachel says, Andrew, could you check and see, are there any midges? Interestingly, in America, they're called noceums because you can't see them. And so midges, right? Tiny, tiny things. She said, are there? And usually I can only see them when there's a whole load of them at once, but I can't tend to see one. And so I go and she says, are there any midges in the conservatory? And I look in, what's the, and I don't see any. What's the answer I should give? Don't know. I don't know. Are there? Well, I can't see any, but if there were any in there, I wouldn't be able to see them. So the best answer I have is not no, like it's a dog, but I don't know, like it's a sandfly or a midge. And I put it to you that if there was a reason for the 
existence of suffering, it would be more like a midge than a dog. It would be more like something that it's very possible I wouldn't be able to see even if it was there than like something I would obviously be able to see as open my eyes. And one of the reasons I say that is that every society in, in history has had to wrestle with this question and an awful lot of them have simply concluded, I don't know. So I don't think, you see, if you have an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God, if he's big enough and knowledgeable enough to be worried about this problem of evil in the first place, to, if he's big enough to blame for suffering, then he's also got to be big enough to have reasons for it that I might not understand. Otherwise, I too would be divine and or accountable for suffering in the world. The comedian Bill Murray, say that you know, some of you know Bill Murray, said on Twitter a while back, there is literally no way of knowing how many chameleons there are in my house, which I thought was a great line. He's like, because a chameleon could be sitting anywhere and I wouldn't know it. It would just disguise itself as the speaker or the screen or whatever. And actually, the problem of evil... Were I to be able to, were God to have a reason for allowing it, it might be that I just didn't know what it was. And so when the logical argument is framed and somebody says, you've just, you've just disproved Christianity by admitting you don't know the answer, my response is, no, I really have not. What I've said is, I just don't know what it is, and I wouldn't expect human beings could. I would expect God to know some things I don't. I would expect the reason for suffering, if there was one, to be more like a midge than like a golden retriever. So, three steps. Short answer to the problem, I don't know. Response to the logical argument, I wouldn't know, would I? Response to the emotional argument, and this is where things don't really take logical course anymore, because even if you respond at a logical level, a lot of people, and I am one of them, and so are the psalmists, and so is Job, will say at this point, you can say what you like about God and hope and mystery and knowledge and dogs and midges, but I hate this. I do not want the world to be like this, and I feel angry that it is. I have an emotional problem, and of course, for many people, the emotional problem takes them to the point of saying, therefore, there simply cannot be a God like that. Even if logically I can't prove it, it just doesn't feel like it could possibly be true that a God who is good would allow all of this to happen. And I can see that. I really can. I feel that. I feel its power. And in some cultures, including contemporary Britain, it is immensely challenging to say, we don't know, and that's okay. A lot of people say, well, if we don't know, that's not okay. God should have to justify this for me to understand it. But it is worth saying, as I already have mentioned in another context, that most cultures haven't actually thought like that. We do, partly because of our understanding of the way the world works, science and so on, we have come to a place of believing we could or should know all things. A lot of cultures don't think that way. They say, actually, this, this is hard, but it doesn't mean there isn't a God. It just means I don't understand. But for many of us, that is still a powerful objection. It is like an emotional pull. It's like a, the tragedy itself makes God feel like he can't be real. And at this point, we don't move through a logical response. Instead, I think, if somebody, if that's you, if you're saying, I all right, I may be persuaded this does not logically prove God doesn't exist. I can see that, but I still hate it to the extent that I just don't want there to believe that there is a God, and I find the idea abhorrent that God might ever allow it, even though I can't prove why that's true. The only thing I've got in response is to say that an awful lot of people see it the other way around. An awful lot of people would say the opposite, 
And I think they have some reason for doing that too. A lot of people would say, billions of people now, billions of people in history would say, do you know, if it were not for something like the Christian gospel, I would not be able to make any sense of any suffering. I just would have not had the resources to do it. Because in the secular story, let's call it that, the story that most of us live surrounded by in our media and school and everything, in the secular story, there is no ultimate basis for declaring anything to be objectively evil. You try to. You appeal to things like human rights or dignity or whatever, but you can't actually prove that strong people shouldn't kill weak people because that's what happens in the animal kingdom all the time. You can at most say, I wouldn't like it to happen, but you can't say it's evil because that's what happens. Lions kill sheep or whatever they might, or they kill gazelles or whatever, because they're bigger and stronger. So if a bigger, stronger person wants to cause a weaker, smaller person to suffer, that happens all the time. You can't prove it's wrong. In the secular story, there's no basis for saying it is wrong. And actually what happens is creatures are born, and creatures die, and the weak eat the strong, and there is no reason objectively to say that any of it's wrong, no shoulder to cry on, no basis to believe that it will ever be made right, and evil wins in the end. We live the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we live on this earth, and then we go down into the ground, we begin fertilizing the worms, the earth carries on spinning through space no faster or slower than it usually does, 60,000 miles an hour, shooting around the sun all the time. You disappear into complete nothingness, and eventually the sun gets so large that it burns up the earth, and all of this is for nothing, ultimately. That's the secular, in the end, nobody talks like that, but in the end, that's that's the reality. That's the final reality we're dealing with. And if you have suffered grievously in this life, and that's the story, there is no resources to make sense of it. It just doesn't give you any hope in the end that any of it will be made up for or atoned for or made right. In the Christian story, things are different. In the Christian story, Admittedly, you have to wrestle with why God might allow bad things to happen. You do have to wrestle with that, and I do, and so do you. But there is a very clear basis for saying some things are good and some things are evil. Because God has revealed himself. Creation is good. Suffering is awful and should not be here. And God enters into our pain in the person of Jesus. Human evil is first renounced and then forgiven. Death is defeated in the resurrection. The world is eventually made new and love wins. And all that is sad becomes untrue. And everything, evil itself, death itself, starts working backwards. And every wicked thing that has ever happened becomes atoned for and swallowed up in victory. Now those, they're not the only two stories, but they're the ones I'm comparing this morning And I want to suggest to you that even if you are somebody who has a deep emotional objection to the idea that God might be loving and there is suffering, that the Christian story, despite the power of that objection, has far greater resources to make sense of suffering and at least to be able to walk through it and stand up under it and hope that one day it will not be like this than the secular story or, in my view, than any other story as well. It provides far more emotional power to cope with the emotional problem of suffering than the secular story does because it pivots on a God who lives and dies as one of us. And it therefore means we are able to say, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, but one day it will not be like this. 
And that's what Christians have been declaring ever since Jesus stepped out of the tomb on Easter Sunday. What happened to him is one day going to happen to everything. And that gives me hope to withstand the pains, what Paul calls the labor pains of this present age. He says, we are, Romans 8, he, he talks this way, he says, we are, creation now is like a woman in labor. I've been banned by my wife from doing the impression of a woman in labor when I'm talking about this. But I find it a very powerful image. He says, we, creation groans like a woman in labor in this, in this creation, this age, that's what's happening. One day, new life will come out from within the old and we will say, oh, thank God that is over. Now let us enjoy new life and new creation. But for now, I was going to do a mime. It was going to go there. I'm going to pull back from that. But you know, if you've seen pictures of women in labor, and I have been there three times for that experience, it's, a, yeah, it's colorful. And Paul is saying that is the nature of this world compared to the world to come. And that's what you should expect if you're a Christian. And it's actually what you should expect if you're not. So I began by saying... But the short answer to the question is, I, why would God allow suffering is, I don't know. I do not know why a loving God allows suffering. I could make some guesses and, as to some circumstances, but I simply don't know, broader than that. But when I look at God revealed in Jesus, becoming like us, suffering with us and for us, and then dying for us and rising again to free us, I do know what the answer isn't. I do know that the answer to the question, why would God allow suffering, is not because he doesn't love us. I don't know what it is, but I know it isn't that because I look at Jesus, I look at the cross, I look at the resurrection, and I conclude I do not know why this is happening, but I do know that if there is a God and he's revealed in Jesus, he loves me, he loves everybody who has ever suffered, and he is not only going to fix evil, but he is somehow going to turn it to good. That's the Christian response, I think. 35 minutes. We are now going to pause and you, why don't you do this? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, okay, here's something I learned or here's a problem I have with that or a thing I'd like to push back or ask about that, okay? So just have a couple of minutes just processing what you've just heard and then we'll have a few questions. Okay. So um, if, you would, if you do have a question, you think it would be helpful for other people to hear and, in, and engage with, I will do my best. I, I've got to, give you, got to give you a heads up that, like I said at the start, ultimately my answer is I don't know, um, which may make this a slightly more weird question time than usual. But if you would like to come to one of these two microphones here, there's a yellow one there and a red one there, and I will do my best. But we're going to need you guys to be uh, quiet again so that we can hear what these guys are saying. I'm looking first of all at a young woman over here, I think. Okay, so we understand now that it's okay to say that we don't know why there is suffering, but then how do we deal with the suffering that is going on? Okay. Um, can I just could I ask the sound person, could you make that noise come out of here? I think you just said, how do we deal with suffering, didn't you? But it's not wasn't that clear. So um, how do you deal with suffering when it's happening? I mean... I mean, that's the best question you can ask, to be honest, so well done. Um, I, what do I do with it? It's reasoning it through isn't always what I need. What I need to do is to learn, I, learn how to, I think how to grieve, I think, is important. I think our, our society is very naturally, very quick fix. We have microwaves. We put things in. They come out three minutes later, fully done. We want quick answers and quick solutions. And 
if I'm honest, I think our Christianity can often be microwavy as well. Because I think what we do is we, sh- we fast track to happy. Um, many of us do. I think we, we say, Jesus is alive and therefore sad things shouldn't happen. And what that can mean, particularly in a setting like this or in the kind of church that I help leads, we want to celebrate God. One of the downsides can be of the way we do that is that we imply that Christians shouldn't be sad. And one of the things we have to learn to do is how collectively as a community to be sad with one another, to grieve and not to say, oh, it's all right because Jesus, you're still alive. So this fact that I've just been diagnosed with cancer really doesn't matter. We need to learn how to cry. We need to learn how to lament. The Psalms are full of songs of sadness. There's a lot of the minor key in the Bible. And I think a big part of what we have to do, particularly, I'm assuming you're asking as a Christian, although I think it's true as an unbeliever as well, is you have to learn how to grieve, how to say, this is sad, this is awful. From grieving, I mean, again, my wife and I wrote this book about this, The Life We Never Expected, which is really follows a psalm through and says what the psalmist does is he, we, he, does, he does, goes through weeping, And then he talks about worshiping anyway. So he cries. Then he says, even though this is awful, I know you're still God, but I just don't get it. And then he waits, and we need to learn how to do that. And eventually he begins to witness to the goodness of God. But that comes last. And often what we do is we try and jump to there. I've just found out that this has happened, terrible thing has happened, but it's okay because God's good. And the Psalms don't really do it that way. They say, I found out this is awful. God, why? Why? How could this happen? How long are you going to allow this kind of stuff to keep happening? Everybody cries. Everybody laments. Gradually, the person begins to say, I know you're God, but I don't get it. And then they begin to say, Lord, I'm going to wait. I'm going to trust that one day you will make some sense of this, but so far you haven't. And it's only at the end that they begin to say, God has been good. So if you I'm not trying to do a book plug, but we did write a book with that structure because we were trying to help people say, in our setting, this is the journey that you have to go on in response to suffering. So I think that's a great question. And the psalm we used was Psalm 130. It's just eight verses long. And we reckon it just went weeping, worshiping, waiting, and then witnessing. And what we've got to learn how to do is particularly the weeping and the waiting. We do not like doing those things. The picture, if it's helpful, that I've often used is uh, you and I in this age... We're like a woman in labor. Paul gave that picture. We are like, have you seen the programs of the um, emperor penguins where they wait in the winter? The men wait with the eggs and the women go off and I don't know what they do, but they go off and have a slightly warmer time. And the men stand in a huddle like this and they, a massive flock of them and they all stand next to each other in this Antarctic blizzard at minus 70, shuffling around like this to try and keep warm for months because the sun's disappeared. And what they do is they're just saying... I am trusting that in a few months' time, new life is going to come out of this egg, and it will all have been worth it. But in the meantime, I've just got to wait. And sometimes we've just got to do that as Christians in darkness. And many of you are in it, and we need to not go for the microwave. We just need to weep and still worship and wait. And one day we will be able to witness, but maybe not now. Is that okay? Okay, yes, sir. Um, If God has the power to heal, does that make the fact that he allows suffering okay? I'm sorry, I'm still really struggling to hear these questions. If God... Um, If he allows healing, if he has the power to heal people, does that make the fact that he allows suffering okay? If God can can heal people, does does that make suffering okay? Did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, No. Um, Sorry, you might want to hear more than that. I don't think it does at all. I think what healing does is healing is a, a... Healing is beautiful because what it does is it brings the world to come into the present age. It bursts in like a thunderbolt from a future world. And it happens a lot. 
So when somebody gets healed, you, somebody gets healed tonight, which I think we're praying for healing tonight in this tent, one of you guys, probably a whole bunch of you will go home physically healed of something. Praise God. What that's doing is not saying you're now better and you won't die. What it's saying is the world to come, the kingdom that will be, has become now in your life, in your body, as a witness to the fact that one day that will be all things will be like that. That's actually not a way of saying suffering's okay. It's a way of saying suffering is not okay, and it's so not okay that God is going to one day destroy it all, and you are getting a foretaste of that now in your physical healing. That's how I would frame the relationship between healing and suffering. It's the breaking in of the future. Yeah. Jesus died on the cross for the sins we committed slash commit, and also for us as beings to get closer to God. But if the majority of the nation doesn't believe in God and blames him for the suffering happening, and if Christians themselves agree with the question and doubt God in this topic, if the world still runs by evil, if non-believers don't understand to wait for God to turn evil to good, was there a point of Jesus dying? Okay, that's a great question. Um, is there a point in Jesus, in, it's raining through the roof, which is really weird. Um, if, if there, is there a point in Jesus dying if it turns out that an awful lot of unbelievers don't see it the way that we've just described and some Christians are struggling with it as well? I think, obviously, I think the answer is absolutely yes, there is. Um, because actually it's only in the death of Jesus that there is either a Christian or ultimately someone who's not a Christian has the framework or the emotional wherewithal to make sense of anything bad happening. Because you either have a God or you don't, right? You either have a God who is going to make the world right or you don't. If you believe you have a world, a God who's going to make the world right, and you believe, hardly any people do, by the way. Even a lot of people who believe in God don't believe that he's one day going to heal this world. Jews do and Christians do. But actually, most other religious believers don't even believe that. Buddhists do not. Hindus do not. Muslims don't really because they believe you escape the world to paradise, but you don't, they don't believe it's going to be resurrected and healed. So actually, if you don't have the Christian story, or at most perhaps if you don't have the Jewish Christian story, then you don't have any basis to believe that there is hope for restoration. And Jesus' death on the cross demonstrates that because he doesn't, doesn't only die, he also rises again. So if you don't have that story, ultimately we are all walking around in the darkness saying there is no hope for this world to be better than it is. Ultimately, there is no answer to the problem of evil, ever. Not just there isn't now, but there won't ever be. And I think if you go to a society where that has been scrubbed from people's memories, if you traveled, none of you did, you weren't alive, but if you traveled in the Soviet Union or in China in the middle of the 20th century where people had suppressed the doctrine of the resurrection not just of Jesus, but of the world, to such an extent that people were really not allowed to believe it and no one was allowed to think that way or talk that way. And you see the way that people lived and did art and built buildings and formed families, you'll see that there is a huge connection between hope and resurrection and between no resurrection, no crucifixion, and despair. And you'll see that sometimes in atheist philosophers as well. You read Nietzsche, you'll see there is really not very much reason to be hopeful once you in is hopeful of a new kind of world and things in that sense ultimately being made beautiful at the end if you remove something like a Jew- Jewish Christian story from the picture so i think even if people don't believe it christianity remains the only source of hope and one of the reasons why by the way in our nation people are still angry about suffering 
at all is because they have inherited a Christian way of thinking about things for so many centuries that they feel like the kind of God that we used to believe in would, is good. And therefore, how do I make sense of this? If you were in a world that was completely atheist, the question wouldn't even come up because there'd be nobody to blame and there'd be no expectation it was ever going to be better. And I think that witnesses to the fact that deep down, there is some, a fundamentally Christian, it's a fundamentally Christian kind of question, why would God allow suffering? In many systems of belief, it wouldn't even come up. So the short answer is yes, and that was the longer answer. I hope that helps. Yes, sir. Yeah, so you sort of answered that question, but uh, I have faced many friends who come who are agnostic and who want to know God, but this is a huge um, a block that why, how can God be there? So in terms of an ap- apologetic answer to somebody who asks you that, what sort of thing would you say to someone who asks you that from an agnostic perspective? Okay, um, good question. I, generally, I would use something very much like the answer I've given here. I would start with, I don't know, but I would very quickly want to ask, can I ask what kind of suffering you mean? Because, or why, or, or something like that. Because what I'm trying to do is to clarify, are you asking this question because you yourself are wrestling with evil and are finding it emotionally tough? Are you making an emotional, a, a logical argument against the existence of God based on something that's happened to you or someone you love? Or are you making a logical argument based simply on the fact that you know some bad things happen? So I'll give you an example. I chatted to somebody after a a Sunday morning meeting. This couple were not a Christian. They'd come to church. I said to them, "Um, what did you make of church today? And they said, well, it's kind of a bit like a cult. And I said, okay, why did you say that? And they said, well, you guys are all worshipping someone you can't see and it's all a bit weird. I said, okay, well, what are your thoughts of Christianity? And very quickly they said, I just think if there was a God, he wouldn't allow. And at the time, the figure was Ian Huntley, who was a, you might have heard of him, a sort of pedophile murderer guy and uh, they said I can't believe that God would allow someone like that to carry on living that was that was for them that was the issue and the tsunami and that sort of thing and as I'm discussing with them I'm realizing okay so for you this isn't a pressing personal problem this is simply a way of saying that I have a there's some gaps in the way I see the world when it comes to how suffering and God could coexist but it's not personal to you so for me to say oh well of course there's another way of looking at that you want justice for Ian Huntley yet at the same time you don't want justice for this that you do why is that? Why the double standard? Or if you're really pushing your luck, are you seriously saying that you didn't realize until that tsunami hit your TV screen, you didn't realize that hundreds of thousands of people die every day in terrible ways? And you only just noticed because it was on the news. I think you're responding to the news rather than responding to the reality of daily death that the world is living with all the time. Now, that's a really harsh answer, but you, and you certainly cannot give that to somebody who's personally suffering. But if someone's basically kind of playing an intellectual game with you, I don't mind pushing back like that if they're pushing quite hard to me. So really the answer I'm giving you is I need to find out why they're asking and begin to tease that out. Because if it's a logical puzzle for them, I can engage a bit more robustly. If it's something, but most people it's not. Most people it's I am in this and I find that painful, in which case I'd answer the question in dialogue and conversation similarly to the way I have today. Okay. Yeah. How do you show someone who's seen so much pain and suffering that there is a loving God, especially if they blame God for it? Great. Um, yeah, it's not easy. Um, I, this is a really obvious child, children's work answer, Jesus. But I, sometimes the, the answers are simple. Because in a way, if somebody is really going through it... I feel like people who are not suffering often struggle to see why they need a gospel. Not everybody, but in my experience, the people who 
have suffered the most see the greatest need for a story that involves death and resurrection. People who haven't suffered much don't see the need for it, really. They're saying, well, everything's fine. And they're actually often harder, in my experience, to show why you might even want to believe Christianity than someone who doesn't. So I'd say, at, if, given that at the center of Christianity is Christ, is a man who came and suffered all the kinds of things we do and died in order to take them all on himself, that even if you don't believe he rose from the dead afterwards, simply reading about his life and his death should convince you that if, if God was like that, he experiences solidarity with you and a shared sense of what it is to be a suffering person that no other system of thought, religious or secular, could ever offer you. And so in some ways, I, I just want to f- find a way of getting from that situation to Jesus and saying, that, this is a part of Christianity. This isn't an, in the end, it's not actually an objection to it. I said that at the beginning. I said, I believe this too. I think this is a problem too. If it wasn't a problem, I wouldn't need a gospel, would I? I'd say, oh, it's fine. Nothing to worry about here. It's only because I, it's only because I and your friends and everybody else in here experiences the depth of the darkness sometimes that I'm aware that I need a Jesus who has suffered it with me and can defeat it. And if somebody at that point says, well, that's all very well, but didn't Jesus just die? Then I can begin to talk about why I believe he rose again as well. But to me, the, the real thing is, if God is like this, wouldn't you want him to have come back to life again? Wouldn't you want the world to be like that? Even if you're not yet persuaded that it is. And if someone says yes, then that's where you can start talking about the reasons why you believe it is. So that tends to be what I, I just want to get people to Jesus, really, and say, if, if God's like this, there's hope. If he's not like that, I'm not sure there is. That's how I would tend to try and do it. Yeah. Um. So friends in my class who would have um, a logical objection to suffering in the world would tell me that the answer, we don't know, but just because we don't doesn't mean that there's an answer. There's, doesn't mean that there's not an answer. Some of my friends would say that that's a bit of a cop-out answer, like I'm making an excuse to, um, by the fact that um, there is no answer. What would your response be that? What would your response be? Brilliant. So I think I would say it is the precise opposite of a cop-out, actually. Because the cop-out is to say, I do have an answer and it all fits into this bucket. It's all because of free will. I think that's the cop-out. The cop-out is to say, I do have an answer, here it is. To say I don't know is actually the opposite of copping out. It's saying, this is such a big problem for me as well as for you that I'm not even going to pretend I can answer it. Now, if... Now, I think when they say cop-out, the the thing I sympathize with them is it sounds like, as I said a few minutes ago, it sounds like I have conceded that there is no reason. And that's the point at which I would, that's where my my dog and midges illustration comes in, to say, I think if you are going to say that this is a reason to disbelieve in God, then the burden of proof is on you that the answer to suffering would be like a dog, not a midge. And I don't think it is. Um, In fact, I think if you have an all-knowing God and he's big enough to be angry at, then it's much more likely to be something I don't know than something I can see. So I I think if that's what they mean, I sympathize. I know why they're saying it. But in the end, a cop-out is really to say, this isn't a problem. I've I've come up with an answer that fixes it. I'm saying I am leaving myself and Christians in general very much on the hook. And if you give somebody a copy of the, I'm not saying then read it, but if you give somebody a copy of the book of Job or Psalm 73 or Psalm 88 or any number of others, and say, does this person read like someone who is copping out to you? It would take an awful lot of 
arrogance to say, yes, they do. In fact, I think the cop-out is sometimes to say, you have this problem, Christian, and I don't. Because I think, actually, at that point, the answer is, well, hang on, why are you using a category like evil in the first place? In fact, why are you even using a category like suffering in the first place? This is just part of the fabric of the world, and it always has been. Why does it matter? And I think most of us would want to say that, no, this should not be like this. And Where does that should come from? Where does the ought come from, given that can I just tell you a brief story about this? My wife was watching Planet Earth, or no, Life of Mammals, with my nephew when he was three. And at three, you don't have, you're not old enough to understand that oughts and ought nots like this. And he's watching a scene, and my wife is going wincing as he's watching a scene as I think the, um, the lions are sort of going after the zebra. I can't really mind being a lion, but anyway, they're going after the zebra like this. And the zebra's like, ah! and you know what's going to happen in the music's building. Dum, 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 dum. And Rachel's thinking, my, he, my sister, as in Charlie's mum, is going to kill me. Because he's gonna, you know, he's gonna see this savage scene, and the lion leaps through the air, tears into the hindquarters of the zebra, rips it to pieces, blood everywhere, and Charlie just looks at Rachel, age three, and goes, "Uh oh," and that's that. He's like, "Oh, oh, the strong eat the weak." He just knows that's the way the world is, and it doesn't really matter. And my question, I suppose, to your friends is, why don't you think that? Why don't you read about terror? Why don't you read about the Holocaust? Let's get really hard-edged about it, or the Rwandan genocide, and say, "Uh oh." Strong people kill weak people. The reason you don't is because you have a problem too, which is an accounting for why that is not just unfortunate, but wrong, evil, which you're right. So you have a problem too. That's a, so those are a number of things I would want to say. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if after Noah, God promised never to flood the earth again, why does he let natural disasters like tsunamis take thousands of lives especially people that had not had the opportunity to find and love God yet. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know and Jesus. Those are the only two things I've got, right? But with the, the specific question of the prom- covenant promise, I think there's probably two questions bundled up there. One is, why does God allow tsunamis at all? The other is, doesn't the fact that he allows things like that to happen indicate that he's broken his promise never to flood again? I think the important thing to bear in mind about the flood story, and I've done a lot of you know, teaching on this and reading it in an ancient context and so on, the important thing about the flood story is that the promise is not I'm never going to send a flood. The promise is I'm never going to wipe out all flesh in a flood. And that's important because actually the reason why the flood is bad is because the flood is an act of judgment saying I am scrubbing out the human race and starting again with Noah. And that I am promising I'm never again going to do that. He doesn't promise I'm never again going to use a natural disaster in in history. And in fact, I'm not saying this is the tsunami at all, but in the Old Testament, you do see examples of things, natural phenomena acting as divine judgment. Uh, in fact, a few chapters later, you have it, that Sodom and Gomorrah are, for the, basically, the, the whole city, all the guys in the city are gathered around to try and gang rape two visitors. And God says, I'm going to judge that city. Fire and sulfur are going to fall out of the sky. Now, that's not an easy story to bring up in an RS class. I know that. But at the same time, it's worth bearing in mind that even in the book of Genesis, before we get to the rest, the assumption of the writer is God will still sometimes use natural means to bring judgment. And I'm not, again, I am not saying the tsunami is that at all. I'm just saying we know that he does. So the writer doesn't mean God's never again going to do that. What he means is I'm never again going to wipe everybody out. And I think that's the issue of the flood. When it comes to why then does he allow the tsunami, that's, I say, I, don't, I do not know. I just don't. I, Everyone's going to die at some point, and every single one of those deaths is tragic for the people who love that person. I think 
why did God allow the tsunami? I'd say, why does God allow cancer? Why does God allow mosquitoes? Why does God allow bovril? Why does, I, don't know. I mean, why, why does God allow anything that is evil and wicked? And I don't know. I've got the same empty answer at that point than I have for anything else. I think anything that brings death. What happens in a tsunami is 180,000 people die at once. And so we are all very aware of how big a problem it is. If the tsunami hadn't happened and those 180,000 people had died the same day in a multi multiplicity of different ways, we might not have realized and might not have seen the problem, but the problem's still there, and it's there today. Those people have been hundreds of thousands of people around the world today grieving, attending funerals, some of you grieving, and the fact that the tsunami was the means by which that happened on that day, I don't think in the end is the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is death and the fact that death has not yet been destroyed. One day it will be, but until then we, we ask why and how long, O oh Lord, and I think that's all we've got. Sorry. Okay, we'll make this the last one. Um, I heard this question a lot. People say that you can't have good without evil, and without it you can't see it. What do you think? Um, you can't have good without evil. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's true um, at all. Um, and there's some really good reflections on this in the Christian tradition. In, uh, guys, if you, um, you know, people like Augustine and Boethius and people like that who began trying to reflect on what actually is evil? Is it a thing or is it the absence of a thing? Because if you say in order to have evil, you have, in, in order to be able to have good, you have to have evil, you are basically saying there cannot be God unless there is also Satan or something like it. That is terrible theology. There was nothing but unequivocal good in eternity past. There always has been God. Until God creates the world, until God creates something else, the only thing in the, that there is is God, and he is entirely good. So it is, from a Christian point of view, heretical nonsense to say you can't have good without evil. What I think you can do is to say evil, however, is not actually a thing. It's the absence of a thing in the end. It's not a substance. It's not something that has an independent existence. If anything, instead of saying you can't have good without evil, what I think you should say is you can't have evil without good. What you, because and the, and the illustration I've often used for this is Evil is like a hole in a sock, right? You have a hole in the toe of your sock, and you, the, the hole doesn't really exist as a separate thing, does it? It's just the lack of sockiness, right? That's what it is. Or a hole in the cheese. You know, when my sister used to eat Amental cheese as a kid, and she would always say, I like eating the holes. And I was, I'm sure you can't believe this, I was a pedantic, fussy teenager. I'm like, you can't actually eat holes, they don't really exist. But she was like, I love eating the holes. And my parents would leave her alone, Andrew. But that statement, I love eating the holes, is kind of attributing existence to something that doesn't actually exist. It's just a, a lack in the cheese or a lack in the sock. And Augustine, Boethius, other great philosophers and thinkers in the Christian tradition said, evil's like that. Evil is ultimately, what they call it a privation of being. It's a lack of something that ought to be there and is not. It's not a substance on its own. And I found that a helpful illustration. So yes, you can totally have good without evil, but ultimately I don't think you can have evil without good. Guys, you have listened brilliantly. Thank you so much for your attention. It's been really great being with you. God bless.